Few things have taught us the importance of a face like 2020. Jeffrey Anderson is a writer and former director of the Bureau of Justice Statistics at the DOJ. And in an article he released last year, he recorded the sentiments of several individuals who've decided to keep their masks on well past the heat of the pandemic, but not for the reasons that you might think. He writes, Francesca, a 46-year-old, fully vaccinated professor in New York, will not abandon her invisibility cloak just yet. It has been such a relief to feel anonymous, she explains. It's like having a force field around me that says, don't see me. Becca, a 25-year-old bookstore employee near Chicago, reports that she and her coworkers prefer not having to see, prefer not having customers see our faces because with a mask, we don't have to smile at them or worry about keeping a neutral face. Bob, a 75-year-old retiree in New Jersey, says that wearing a mask frees him from having to appear happy. Amy, a 44-year-old screenwriter in Los Angeles, likewise enjoys the emotional freedom that comes from wearing a mask, end quote. Through their pandemic experience, Francesca, Bob, Becca, and Amy found themselves preferring to live faceless in society. To them, the anonymity that a mask provides is a better alternative than relating to others with their face uncovered, where they and their emotions are exposed. Now, putting aside your personal opinions and feelings about the mask for just a moment, it is interesting to reflect upon what the mask revealed about us. The old saying is that the eyes are the window of the soul But I'm convinced that COVID taught us just how important the whole of the human face truly is. I think we instinctively knew that something significant was missing during our interactions that were mediated through a mask. You see, we intuitively associate someone's face with their identity, with who they really are as a person. It's impossible for me to think about my grandma Rosie or my brother Jeremiah with out their faces popping into my mind. I associate their face with who they are. And even further than identity, the face is how we naturally discern someone's disposition towards us. Through our facial expressions, or or lack thereof, we communicate how we feel toward someone. So much so that if the words of my mouth contradict the message that I'm sending with my facial expressions, You're much more likely to believe my face, aren't you? Our faces have much deeper meaning than we often realize. And as those who believe in a God who created humanity in his image, we believe this reality is no mere accident or coincidence. It's not as if we arbitrarily decided to attribute more meaning to the face than other parts of the body. We believe that our faces have meaning because God intended them to. In eternity, God himself is a spirit and thus does not possess a body like us, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says. Yet we repeatedly see body-like language attributed to him in the scriptures in order to condescend to our human understanding, don't we? This language describes God in a way that we, can't, that we can comprehend as finite human beings. We see references to the eyes of the Lord, the ears of the Lord, the hands of the Lord, and so on. But the most personal and intimate statements are made with reference to the face of the Lord. 
His face is most closely associated with his divine presence and character. Worship in the scriptures, then, is often described as seeking the face of God. And this morning, we're going to look at one of the most familiar and beloved texts in the whole of the Bible. You may have even memorized it without trying because you've heard it read at the end of worship services as a benediction before the congregation is dismissed. We'll be considering God's word to us in Numbers 6, 22-27, often referred to as the Aaronic Blessing. If you have a Bible with you, I'd love for you to turn there with me. If you're using one of our pew Bibles in front of you, we'll be on page 207. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, we'd love for you to take that home with you. One brief note before I read our text for us. This passage is not meant to be heard as a request. It's not a petition to God for something that we desire to be true. This blessing is a, a pronouncement, a declaration from God that was to remind his people of something that was already true. This should affect the way that you and I hear it. That said, please stand with me in honor of God's word as I read our text for this morning. Numbers chapter 6, starting in verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. A bit of context for where we are in the biblical story this morning. You'll remember that the nation of Israel has been miraculously liberated from slavery in Egypt. The people of God have received the law in the Mosaic Covenant at the foot of Mount Sinai where they've now been for two years. And yet, God's promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12 of a land flowing with milk and honey has yet to be fulfilled. In the book of Numbers, we find a great people without a place. Therefore, the opening chapters of Numbers describe Israel's hopeful preparation at the foot of Mount Sinai for their journey into the wilderness toward the promised land of Canaan. And the immediate chapters leading up to our passage detail the consecration of the people to be holy as God is holy, which gives the context of this blessing. In response to their being made holy, according to the instructions that God had given them, the Lord gives to them this divine blessing. This blessing is thus closely tied to the holiness of God's people. We'll consider this text in three points. What is the blessing? How do God's people receive his blessing? How does God's blessing change me? What is the blessing? How do God's people receive his blessing? And how does God's blessing change me? First, what is the blessing? Those who have spent much time in the South at all will know that the words blessing or blessed have inherited certain cultural meanings, haven't they? 
Perhaps you've heard the term blessed with reference to physical health and financial success. Or maybe you've heard the phrase, well, bless their heart, used in condescension. It's the rough equivalent of saying that someone isn't the brightest bulb on the Christmas tree or that they're a few fries short of a Happy Meal. Bless their heart. Putting those common cultural uses aside, blessing in the Bible is of much more spiritual significance. A blessing was an expression or pronouncement of favor, of acceptance or approval upon another. For for example, when I wanted to marry my wife, Colette, what do you think I asked her father for? His blessing. Though today this is often seen as mere permission, it's more than that. I wanted my father-in-law to look favorably upon the prospect of me marrying his daughter. In asking for his blessing, I expressed my desire that he be confident in my ability to lead, protect, and provide for her. Giving me his blessing would express his favor upon me to fulfill these responsibilities, which up to that point had belonged to him. So therefore, when the Bible speaks of blessing, this is much closer to the kind of idea that we see. And in our passage this morning, we see a blessing authored by God himself given to Aaron's priesthood to speak over the people as a regular reminder of God's favorable disposition towards them. In this blessing, there is a promise of protection and favor through a face-to-face relationship with God himself. That's what this blessing is in a nutshell. A promise of protection and favor through a face-to-face relationship with God himself. You can see the framework of the blessing in verses 22 through 23 and verse 27. Though this passage is often referred to as the ironic blessing, the passage makes clear that it is God who is the true source and author of the blessing. Verse 22, God speaks directly to Moses with instructions to deliver the blessing to Israel through Aaron and his priesthood. Remember that priests under the old covenant served as God's mediators between him and his people. The priest would offer ritual sacrifices, and intercede on behalf of Israel. As part of their worship liturgy, liturgy then, these priests were charged to pronounce this benediction over the people of Israel. Each line of the blessing brings attention to the fact that it is God himself who is able to bless his faithful people. We see a threefold repetition of the name Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Repetition in the Bible is a rhetorical tool which gives increased emphasis, such as when God is described as holy, holy, holy in Revelation 4.8. Or when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. The repetition gives greater emphasis. It makes a point. And in this case, the point is that it is God who has chosen to act mercifully toward his covenant people. It's not as if The words have power in and of themselves as some kind of incantation. No, the blessing was to play a significant role in reminding God's people of his faithfulness towards them, especially as they were preparing to enter the wilderness on the way to Canaan. They were to receive the blessing in faith. Within the blessing itself, we're meant to see an expansion or an escalation like a literary staircase. In the original Hebrew, verse 24 has three words. Verse 25 has five words. Verse 26 has seven words. Verse 24 has 12 syllables. Verse 25 has 16 syllables. Verse 26 has 16 syllables. This rhythm or pattern 
even goes down into the Hebrew consonants that make up those syllables. So imagine with me for a moment that verses 22 through 23 are the first step of this staircase, setting the blessing in its narrative frame. Each line of the blessing then serves as an escalation up the staircase, ultimately to the top, which is verse 27, which we'll consider later. Rhetorically, the blessings are enlarging or expanding upon one another as they go from the first to the second to the third. And this poetic composition is meant to serve the theological significance contained in it. Let's consider the first line together. Verse 24, the Lord bless you and keep you. Again, we see that word bless, and you might be tempted to think it's pretty vague. Just glaze past it. But to the Israelite people, it would have been understood to be both encompassing and particular. As God has shown them already in the book of Genesis and Exodus, God's blessing toward the nation of Israel meant children. It meant property, land that had been promised to them. It meant well-being, and most of all, it meant the presence of God despite earthly circumstances. God blesses his people because he cares for them. He meets their needs and meets them in abundance. He isn't stingy. And continuing to the end of the verse, we see that those blessed by God are also kept by God. This is protective shepherd language. As Israel is looking ahead towards Canaan, they can't help but see God's enemies who are out to destroy them. What a comfort it must have been to God's people to hear that God would keep them. Remember back in Genesis 2.15 where the Lord charges Adam to work the garden and to keep it. Adam was put into the garden as a protector to guard it, to make sure that nothing defiled or corrupted God's good creation. That's how God acts towards his people. This is precisely why the psalmist can say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. God has promised to keep his people. He has promised to keep you. Verse 25, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. As we considered earlier, the face communicates one's disposition or attitude towards another. This is why in the Psalms we see that frequent petition that the Lord not hide his face from us. And in this blessing, what is said about the face? His face is said to shine upon his people. Little explanation is needed here, right? We all know what a shining face looks like. It's a face that's thrilled to see you. My wife and I, uh, we have a six-month-old daughter named Nora, and many have asked us what our favorite part about being new parents is. There's, of course, too many to count, but one of my personal favorites is simply getting her out of her crib in the morning. There's a, uh, she'll often wake up all dazed and confused, but as soon as she makes eye contact with you, she just grins from ear to ear. She's just beaming to see us. And in that moment, more so than others, we know that she is pleased to see us. We can feel the joy of her face shining upon us. For, for the kids in the room, you know how great it feels to see your mom or your dad smiling at you, don't you? When you've cleaned up your room or you've done the chores they've asked you to and you go and you tell them that you did what they said and they respond with a smile, doesn't that make you feel good to know that you pleased them? Just by looking at their face, you can tell how much they love you, can't you? A shining face communicates 
pleasure with those that it shines on. One way to diagnose whether or not you have a right view of God's posture to you is to ask yourself what facial expression you imagine being on God's face when he looks at you. Is his brow furrowed? Is his jaw clenched? Is he rolling his eyes because you committed that sin that you said you never would again? Does he have a half-hearted smirk? Or is he entirely indifferent? Is it as if he didn't even notice that you were in the room with him? Often when I ask Christians this question, they're surprised to hear their own answer. If they're honest with themselves, they often imagine a host of different expressions on God's face, most of them entirely negative. From anger to sadness to disgust to indifference, they subconsciously believe that God is anything but pleased with them. I encourage you, later this evening, either before you go to that New Year's Eve party or as you put your head on your pillow tonight, ask yourself what God's face looks like when he looks at you. And then ask yourself why you think that is. What lie are you tempted to believe which affects your view of his posture toward you? Many of us who've been following Jesus for years still often primarily see God as this angry judge with his hand on his gavel, just itching for us to mess up one more time so that he can slam it down, call us guilty and unworthy of his presence. Oh, brothers and sisters, look what God has said to us in this blessing, said to you here in this blessing. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. His face doesn't shine upon the version of yourself that you present on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. His face shines upon you as you truly are because you are fully known by him. Those who have responded to the message of the gospel in faith and repentance belong to God as a son or daughter, and he always smiles upon his children. When God looks at you, his face lights up. Like a child opening their presents on Christmas morning. Like a groom seeing his bride walking down the aisle on his wedding day. Like a father seeing his prodigal son come back home. God's face shines upon you. He doesn't scowl. He doesn't roll his eyes. He doesn't turn his face. He looks right at you, and he is pleased. Who doesn't need to hear this this morning? I, I know I do. If you belong to Jesus, God has a bright, big smile on his face when he looks at you. The verse continues, because God's face shines upon us, we can be confident that he will act graciously toward us as well. This is the language of forgiveness, that he will not give us what we deserve. And this is good news because the only kind of relationship that you and I as unholy sinners can enjoy with a holy God is one characterized by grace. For as much as we desire and strive for justice in this world, you and I don't want God to act justly toward us. It is not morally incumbent upon God to show sinful and unholy people grace. Justice entails judgment, which is ultimately what we see follow in the book of Numbers. More on that later. We need God to be gracious towards us, and that is what he promises to provide here in number six. Let's keep going. Verse 26, the Lord lift up his countenance 
upon you and give you peace. What does this idea of lifting up his countenance upon you mean? If hiding one's face communicates a withdrawal of support, lifting his countenance upon you further expresses his favor and benevolence. It means he's not distracted. It gives the idea that his attention is focused on you. Kids, you know how frustrating it is when you want someone to look at you and listen to you, but you just can't seem to get their attention? You tug on their shirt, tap them on their leg, and they're busy talking to someone else or busy with something else. You never have to worry about that with God. You don't have to worry about his attention drifting off while you're still talking. When you pray to him and tell him what's on your heart, you have his full attention. He's looking at you right in your eyes. He listens to every word you say. That's the kind of God that we worship. Isn't that amazing? In light of his attentiveness towards us, he's also well acquainted with our needs well before we ask. The person who is sick with grief over the loss of a loved one, God sees you. To the person who is suffering through depression and anxiety, God sees you. To the person who is discouraged over what feels like a losing battle over indwelling sin, God sees you. He's never surprised by our circumstances. You can't catch him off guard with whatever you're going through. His countenance is lifted up upon you. He sees you. At the end of verse 26, we find the crescendo of the blessing. Shalom peace. In light of God's commitment to bless us, to keep us, to make his face to shine upon us, to be gracious to us, and to lift his countenance upon us, God's people enjoy peace. It is a complete blessing. It is the sum total of all God's gifts. Not merely the cessation of earthly warfare or hostility from enemies. This blessing entails total well-being. It means peace. Lastly, in verse 27, we see God say, so they shall put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. This is the top step of that staircase that we mentioned earlier. God's name is the mark of his ownership. It means I'm in covenant relationship with him. You know how in the movie Toy Story, whenever Woody is feeling lost and discouraged, He looks at the bottom of his boot, and what does he see? He sees the name Andy. The name reminds him of who he is, who he belongs to, and the relationship that he enjoys with Andy. God puts his name upon his people. He marks his territory. says, they belong to me. And God, in his kindness, actually gives us visual reminders of this reality. In baptism and the Lord's Supper. In baptism, the individual says, hey, I I belong to Jesus. My allegiance is his. I'm on his team. And then the church likewise says, we believe you. Let's follow Jesus together. The Lord's Supper then serves as an ongoing, repetitive reminder of that name that belongs to them. Every time we come to the table, we renew that profession of faith. We say, I still believe that Jesus is Lord and King. My heart still belongs to him. I bear his name. These symbols, therefore, should strengthen our faith. They serve as a visual reminder of the reality that we bear the name of Jesus and we possess the blessing that he won on our behalf. 
This leads naturally to our second point. How do God's people receive the blessing? How do God's people receive the blessing? If you're familiar with the book of Numbers at all, you know that things don't go so well for the people of Israel as they leave Mount Sinai. In Numbers 13, we see the infamous account of the spies who deliver an intimidating report of the enemy armies that Israel would have to face to come into the land. And the people fall into disbelief of God's favor towards them. They fail to trust in the blessing that God has so graciously given to them. And tragically, that entire first generation of Israelites dies out in the wilderness as a result. They never get to enter the promised land. You see, under the old covenant, the faithfulness of God's people was the prerequisite for blessing. The holiness of God demanded their purity. Breaking God's law entailed the curse rather than blessing. What you and I must see in this blessing is that we will never be worthy of it. We will never deserve God's merciful disposition towards us. As long as obedience and faithfulness are prerequisite to this blessing, we will only deserve the curse. And yet, in John 16, 33, on the night that he would be betrayed, Jesus uttered these words. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. As we look back at the words of the, of the blessing in number six, we see the exact opposite of what Jesus would experience at the cross. I can't say it any better than Pastor Ligon Duncan already has, so listen as I read his words. Rather than receiving the Lord's blessing, he, Jesus, is going to be the object of the Lord's curse. Rather than being kept by the Lord, the Lord is going to unleash all the minions of hell upon his son. Rather than seeing the Father's delight shining down on him, the Father is going to turn his face from him. Rather than knowing the gracious forgiveness of God, he is going to experience the fullness of the penalty for the total weight of our sin by himself. Rather than knowing that the Father's eyes are on him, he is going to cry out, my God, why have you forsaken me? And rather than knowing the total blessing of God, he is going to be pushed out into that darkness, into that chasm where there is no peace. And in doing this, he is going to guarantee the fullness of this blessing, coming upon all who trust in him. But he himself is going to forego it for you. This is an exceedingly, blessed, exceedingly precious blessing, and it is an exceedingly costly blessing, end quote. How can God's people receive this blessing? By being joined to the one who received the curse on our behalf. Those who have faith in the Son of God, who repent of their sin, are brought into covenantal fellowship with the triune God. We exchange our filthy rags for the righteousness of Christ himself, so that when you and I behold the very face of God one day, we need not shrink back in fear or shame, but we can, like the old beloved hymn says, look full in his wonderful face. Now the blessing serves to remind us and point us back to the grace that belongs to us in Christ. So let me encourage you, don't view the benediction at the end of our worship services as an unnecessary tack-on. When you hear this text or another read at the benediction at the end of a gathering, 
Try to orient your mind and heart to consciously believe it and receive it as it is pronounced over you. You might even say to yourself, yeah, the words of this benediction are true of me in Christ. God's face shines upon me. Praise God. You and I should work consciously to receive the benediction in ble- as a blessing in faith. Now, friend, if you are here today and you don't understand yourself to be a follower of Jesus, it, it's important for you to understand that this blessing is, is not universal. God's face does not shine on every person without exception. We are not at peace with him by default. The face of God only shines upon those who look to the Son for salvation. The peace promised in this blessing is such good news because without it, we are at enmity with God. One day, every one of us will give an account before the Lord, and it is a fearful thing to look into the face of a holy God without a perfect mediator to represent you. The reason that Jesus came to earth is because the righteous requirement of the law still had to be fulfilled in order for God to be just in offering forgiveness. The beauty of the gospel is that when God looks at those who belong to Jesus, he sees you as if you lived as Jesus did, in obedience to God's law. And that offer is available to you here this morning. So let me encourage you to ask yourself, are you ready to look into the face of the holy God one day? The expression that you'll find on his face is dependent upon your posture towards his son. If you'd like to know more about what that might look like for you, I or one of the elders would be happy to speak with you for as long as you like. Just come find us at the end of the service down here in front. Point three, how does God's blessing change me? First, the blessing should cause us to see ourselves differently. As the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. From this comes the Lord, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. As we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ by the Spirit, we too are likewise being transformed into that image. Though we still wrestle with sin, and put it to death as long as we're on this side of heaven, we are being molded into Christ's likeness. That is a true reality of all those who are in Christ. By God's grace, you look more like Jesus did this year than you did last year. And you'll, by God's grace, you'll look more like Jesus next year and the year after than you did this year. Brothers and sisters, God is at work in you and he is not finished yet. Author Michael Glodo writes... To be looked upon by the face of God means to be loved, but it also means to be enthralled. Therefore, we unmask since Christ has been unveiled. When we see not just what God sees, but how God looks upon us, we can say, I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. This is a far superior look compared to the selfies that populate our social media. Selfies are mediated representations of ourselves that we can take and retake as we present ourselves to the world exactly as we want to be seen. The smartphone camera didn't invent the selfie, but it did technologize what people have always done, make masks and make veils. God in Christ sees the real us. He sees us as we really are and as we will be one day, end quote. 
So let me encourage you to take off whatever proverbial mask or veil you're tempted to put on for others, especially for those who are in this room. We are all works in progress. Every single person in this room should have a sign around their neck that says, under construction. God is shaping and forming you into the image of his son, especially when it's painful and it hurts. But we can trust that God is for our good and for his glory. So we should see ourselves differently in light of this blessing. Secondly, the gracious gaze of God should also transform the way that we see others. In light of the reality that all people bear the image of God, we should recognize the dignity, worth, and value that God has given to them. Every time you look someone in the face, especially when it's someone you don't particularly enjoy being around, remember, they are a reflection of their creator. Those who look forward to God's face shining on you should remember, you should examine whether that you treat all those who share God's image with the kindness and respect that they deserve. People are amazing. Not because of any inherent self-made virtue that they possess in and of themselves, but because each of them are made in the likeness of God himself. Though that image is marred and broken because of sin, it's still there. They still bear God's image. And I promise you, if you commit yourself to recognizing that image, even in the most unpleasant, unlikable people, it will transform the way that you see them. Unfortunately, in a technological world where so much of our interaction with others is disembodied, it can be so easy to forget who made them. I encourage you to consider what other implications that this blessing might have on your view, the way you view others and treat others. Beloved, you and I need to believe the words that you read and hear in this passage. You need to remember them. As I mentioned earlier, they are pronouncement of what is true about God's favor upon you. And yet, in this life, we still wait to experience the fullness of what it promises. What we believe now, by faith, will one day be sight. That day is coming. As the Apostle John writes in 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. The day is coming when we will see God's face shine upon us with our own eyes. And we will get to rest in the peace that he's provided for us in Christ for all eternity. We now wait with patience for that glorious day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how kind you are to persistently remind us of your grace toward us in Christ. Though we deserve the curse for our sin, you demonstrate your great mercy to us with this blessing. What a privilege it is to bear your name in this world. Would you use this word to us this morning to bring us comfort, assurance, rest, and peace? Would this next year be marked by our eager longing for the day when we will lift our gaze and behold your wonderful face in all its glory? Would we this year say with the psalmist, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. We pray this in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Amen.